listeners. This is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We all love to eat. Well, I would like to tell you about my friends at the Rib Shack Barbecue on West Bay Drive in downtown Largo. Their menu offers family-sized takeout dinners like delicious ribs, chicken, beef, and pork, or sit-down barbecue dinners, sandwiches, and even desserts. They will also cater your party. Everything is barbecued fresh using real oak for that great smoky flavor. So visit my friends, Corey, Jed, and Kirk, at the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 600 West Bay Drive, or call them for a takeout order at 727-501-9090. That's 727-501-9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. This is Robert from Nostalgic Video and Cars, here to tell you about Bellador's Pizza and Pasta, where the food is fresh, the sauce homemade, and the price is fantastic. They offer Chicago-style stuffed crust pizza, New York-style pizza, calzones, strombolis, pasta entrees, beer wine, and great desserts. They even make the bread fresh daily. Hey, they offer catering, and any order over 10 bucks, free delivery. So give them a call at 727-581-5000. Place your order now. They're located at 131 Clearwater Lager Road near downtown Largo. Or visit their website, belladorspizza.com. Yeah, it's right over here. You want to get in? Really? Sure. Do you have a business card? Sure. Thanks. I'll see you in about 20 years. funny thing about a Porsche. There's the moment you know you want one. There's the moment you first own one. And for the truly afflicted, there's the decade or two that passes in between. From its first days on the road over 40 years ago, the 911 has ignited the kind of passion in drivers that only a Porsche can. And now once again, it is poised to redefine what's possible. Introducing the new 911 Carrera. It is, quite simply, the purest expression of who we are. Porsche. There is no substitute. Hi everybody, this is David Hobbs, racing driver and speed commentator, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Hey, listeners, welcome. You're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live in the studio here in downtown Clearwater. Be sure and check out our Facebook page, and don't forget to like us. While you're on our website, if you've uh, missed any of our past shows, you can also go to our podcast, which is Nostalgic Radio and Cars. We still have a few items on our stuffs page. You know, we've got some shirts and decals. We've got hats coming, so be sure and do that. And... There's a ton of car stuff going on, and uh, I can't even get to all of it. But I tell you what, if you want to know what's going on, be sure and check out our events page on our website, Nostalgic Radio and Cars. You can find all the good stuff that's going on. Anyway, hey, how you doing there, Cedric? 
Oh, pretty good. Pretty good? Well, let me give you a quick little rundown of what's going on. Starting the week after next is the big week, the week you hear me always talking about, which is the Amelia Island Concourse. Actually, you know what? You hear me talking about Monterey and how we have a Monterey Car Week. Well, guess what? Amelia Island is kind of uh, evolving into the same kind of a deal. It's going to be an Amelia Island, Amelia Island Car Week. That's going to be pretty cool because Amelia Island has been there, I think this is going on the 19th year. It's really, really cool. And, uh, of course, you know, it started out just as a nice little concourse and a few little cars hanging out and some car guys got together and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I will have to say that Bill Warner has done a sensational job. In fact, I think he's really gone to the extremes where he has really, truly put on one of the finest car events in the country because Bill is a true car guy, okay? And having said that, being a car enthusiast... And just an all-around car guy, an extremely knowledgeable, a collector, a racer, a photographer. He's done an excellent job. His concourse on Sunday is amazing. On Saturday, he's having the uh, coffee and cars now. But you really have to check it out. Now, also, you got going on there. You've got the RM auction on the 8th. You've got the Gooding auction on the 7th. You've got the new auction. You've got my friends at Hollywood Car Auctions doing the Amelia Island Select. That starts Saturday the 8th, and that's like around 1 o'clock to about 8 p.m. we got some really cool cars. I'll get into that in a few. We also have FOS, which is Festivals of Speed. That's also Saturday the 8th from 10 o'clock till 4 o'clock. So that should be fun. But anyway... Let's see what else we got going on. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, in, uh, last week we had Steve Wolcott on. He's the, uh, co-founder of the National Mustang Racers Association. So they're going to have their big event also in March. The same weekend, that's going to be at Bradenton. I think Gainesville's got the Gators going on. There's just a ton of stuff going on. But let me tell you about last weekend. Last weekend, I went to a really cool show, and I've been there a time or two. And down at, that takes place down at Boca Grande. It's called the Boca Grande Concourse. And it's a pretty, truly cool event. They've got some Pebble Beach quality slash Amelia Island quality cars down there. Some amazing stuff. I mean, you have Gullwing Mercedes-Benzes. You have, you know, V16 Cadillacs. you got V12 uh, Packards down there. You had a car that really got my attention because my mom had one when I was a little kid, and that was a 1957 Mercury. But this gentleman that I met there, he had a beautiful... Very rare, very low production, 1958 Mercury Monterey convertible. Beautiful car, white car, green interior, factory power windows. It had air conditioning, which was very unusual. But what was really cool is when I was talking to the guy, um, in 57, 58, they made the Turnpike Cruisers, which had the, the big motor in it. And uh, you, it was like the optional 430, which was essentially a Lincoln motor, uh, or at least that's what it evolved into. But anyway, so he had a 430 Turnpike Cruiser motor with a set of trips on it, which is tricarbs, the whole air cleaner package, and the valve covers. And he said after this show, and he wins his award, which he did, he won two awards actually, he was going to take the original motor out and put this 430 tricarb motor in there. Now that's a true car enthusiast, because here he had a car that had a potential value, even in today's market, as wild and wacky as it is, this 58 Mercury convertible, which is a very, very unusual car. That car's probably worth seven eighty thousand dollars maybe more, I don't know. But the motor that he was putting in it is probably worth ten fifteen thousand dollars in itself, you know, 430 tri-power setup i mean just the air cleaners with five grand you know at least that's what they bring on ebay so it's really hard to say some of this stuff is just unbelievable and it's all about rarity and all about uniqueness and and that's what i can't stress enough on this radio show when i talk about cars is how you know if you're going to buy a car and you have the you know the checkbook to go along with it you buy the rarest low production coolest cars that you can possibly buy 
Of course, the other thing that was there, too, not only was there a number of astonishing, outstanding, just beautifully restored cars, but there was two cars in particular that kind of got everybody's attention. One was the vintage Rolls-Royce, and one was the vintage Mercedes. And I think it was a 500K, I'm not sure. And it had an amazing group of people and a crowd that i absolutely amazed. Now, here's a car. Both these cars look like they've been sitting under a lean-to for probably decades, okay? And... Particularly if you're in the South and you know what a car looks like when it's been sitting outside for a while, it's just covered with dirt and filth and silt and just a nasty, nasty car. And um, so it it just got a whole ton of attention because these cars are basically what they call, I don't even, there's not even really a survivor car. It's just an original unrestored barn find. And for some reason, this craze is kind of like a phenomenon. It's taking off. Um, at Gooding Auction in Scottsdale this past year, they had a 1956 or 57 uh, Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing. Black car, red interior, kind of tattered looking a little bit. Relatively tattered, tattered but, but a solid car, decent car. Another one, been sitting for a long time. You don't want to say it was neglected, but it just was or abused, but it was neglected. It's just been sitting there. And um, that car brought, I think, close to a million six, million seven. So by the time you're all in, you're talking at a million eight. You know, somebody wrote a check for that car. While on the other hand, a nicely restored 300 SL Gullwing, pretty decent car, brought a million three. So a million four. So I don't know. I mean, it's something that we've we've discussed this a number of times with a number of car guys on the show, and, and nobody can really uh, pinpoint what it is. So my guess is it's kind of a craze. Although me, coming from my background, which is kind of like the junkyard guy, uh, you know, I've always had survivor cars, barn finds, dug stuff out of the back of somebody's garage or warehouse. And I've always been enamored with that. In fact, I've always kind of left the cars alone. I get them running, drive them, have fun with them. Matter of fact, if you walk out in the parking lot, there's a 1981 Camaro barn find sitting on the back of my truck right now as we speak. Not that it's anything special, but it's a pretty raggedy, ragged old turd kind of car. I can say turd on the radio, can I there? Yes. Turd? Okay. I didn't hear a beep. Yeah, it's a turd's okay. Turd's okay. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, not the proper nomenclature, but it's a pretty cool piece uh, for somebody that wants to get into an entry-level budget car for about, you know, twelve, thirteen hundred bucks. That's the other extreme. So you're talking a million eight for a 300 SL Gullwing or twelve, thirteen hundred bucks for my ratty beat-up 81 Camaro with a six-cylinder. Of course, you know what they're going to do with that. They're going to wrestle mod the car. Basically, it's all there. So it's a good car to start with. Uh, so anyway, but the Boca Grand Con course was just an outstanding event i gotta tell you oh and the motorcycle collection there was some really really cool motorcycles in fact my friends over at uh, hollywood car auctions brought down the the fonzie motorcycle you know that the, the only the one, one he jumped the shark with the only one that they ever used on a TV show. I don't think he really rode it around that much. He just kind of mostly just sat on it yeah. and drug it into the to the milkshake stand there or whatever it was, the little coffee shop that they all used to hang out with. And then, of course, Parker downstairs behind the, uh, the two-story little apartment that he used to live in. It's funny because somebody corrected me the other day. I was writing a little piece on, on Fonzie, and I spelt it F-O-N-S-I instead of Z-I. Yeah, you got to have the Z. Yeah, I screwed up. Oh, well. Hey, and I used to watch the show, you know? I was a big fan of Mr. C and the rest of the gang there, and Potsy and Weber and all those guys. But anyway, so the Boca Grand Concourse is a, definitely a great show, and it's a must. And like I said, there's just a little something for everything. And they had a ton of muscle cars. They had Mustangs. They had Camaros. They had Firebirds. They had Sunbeam Tigers. A friend of mine, Craig, won't mention any last names, but he had a beautiful and a legit original. It's kind of a mustard color. Uh, 1973 Pantera, or 72 rather, small bumpered car, Pantera GTS. Extremely rare car. A legit car with full documentation. Something like 17,000 original miles on it. Beautiful car. There was another car that I'm a big fan of. There was a... Uh, 
Ferrari 250 GT uh, Spider there. And that was just a beautiful car. Uh, another friend of mine, Lloyd, he had a beautiful 19, I guess it was a 56, 57, 140 Jag fixed-hand coupe. Now, their Jaguar had roasters, cabriolets, and fixed-head. Fixed-head is their term for a hardtop. Drop-head uh, is a convertible or cabriolet and then roadster is just basically kind of like you know top falls down you stuff it behind the seat type deal but there were some pretty cool start pretty cool cars there uh the there was a stutz that was there that i really was impressed with and it was a um late 20s early 20s i should say and I, it had a really cool hood ornament i took a picture of that i thought that was really fascinating and i'm kind of into taking uh pictures of hood ornaments and just odd perspective of cars there was another gentleman and his wife that i met there and they had a Mid-teens, I'm going to call those, those are called brass era cars. Um, an Oakland, okay, pre-Pontiac. Beautiful car, fresh restoration, truly, again, over-restored, but very correctly done. You know, we talk about this on the show from time to time. You know, what's the definition of a, rest, of a restored car, a restoration? Restoration means restored to original condition, kind of the way it rolled off the assembly. Line. That's my definition. And I think if you talk to the majority of the experts out there, that's kind of the consensus. The, but the majority of the cars that you see at many of these shows and auctions and uh, concourse are over-restored. And that's fine. You know, a lot of people expect that. So they're basically like jewelry at this point in time. Uh, really, really cool stuff. So the Boca Grand Concourse is a definite must. I mean, if you want to see some outstanding cars, concourse quality, Pebble Beach, Amelia Island quality cars, you definitely got to check out the Boca Grand Concourse. Not to mention it's a charity fundraiser for, uh, I think, the Boys and Girls Clubs and other uh, children's foundations. You'll see celebrities, uh, sports figures, uh, but more importantly, the cars. The cars are the stars. So uh, check out the Boca Grand Concourse. Super event. Hey, we got something spinning around in a turntable? Yeah, we got a couple things lined up here. What do we got? What do we got? Uh, I think we're going to go with the uh, with the Phil Collins here first. Oh, right? yeah. Is that, 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 this is uh, uh, Against All Odds. That's it. Now, that has a dual meaning there. It was, you know, it, was, it, was, it was a movie. It, had, it starred, uh, who was it? James, uh, uh, what was his name? And then uh, one of the bridges. One of the bridges. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, it was kind of a love story thing, but it was kind of a cool movie. And um, but there was a Ferrari in there, and there was a scene where James Woods—that's what it was—and Jeff Bridges were racing, dueling down the road in a Ferrari 308 and a Porsche 911. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm a big Porsche fan. In fact, we got a very special guest coming on the show a little bit later, who is also a world-renowned racing champion slash legend, who's big time. Porsche guy. So stick around. You're tuned into Nostalgia Radio and Cars. This is, uh, I guess, Phil Collins and Against All Odds. Groovy song. Without a trace. When I stand here, take every breath with you. Ooh. You're the only one who really knew me at all. Just walk away from me When all I can do is watch you leave Cause we've shared the laughter and the pain And even shared the tears You're the only one who really knew me at all So take a look at me now Cause there's just an Nothing left here to remind me Just the memory of 
Just take a look at me now Cause there's just an empty space And you coming back to me Is against the odds And that's a chance I've got to take Hi, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. If you'd like to play golf, Magnolia Valley Golf Club is offering some specials this week. Give them a call up there at 727-847-2342. They have a 9-hole executive course and they have an 18-hole par 72. And they've got great food on the 19th hole. So call my friend Pete at 727-847-2342. And be sure to tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars Wednesdays at 7 p.m. So it was weird. I mean, I had no idea that it was a dangerous car because it was so lightweight, because it was so, you know, these very fine tubes everywhere. You talk to the drivers, Derek Bell, who drove the 917. So I can't believe we got into those things. They were incredibly dangerous. Your feet were ahead of the front wheels. You're sitting in front of... Uh, 12-cylinder engine. Derek Bell, der englische Le Mans Routinier, sieht der Feuertaufe des 924 Carrera mit Zuversicht entgegen. Well, we've done so much incredible development, you know, during the. We have unglaublich viele Tests gefahren. Particularly with Porsche, you're running into the unknown. And I mean, in that Porsche 917 Longtail, we were doing 246 miles an hour. People say, you, 240 miles an hour? Gosh, that's quick. Of course, it's quick. Once you get over 200 miles an hour, you actually get into another type of atmosphere. You know that really you haven't got much to do with the control of the car at that speed. It's just going and going and going and going. But I never thought of it as being dangerous. For me, it was just an opportunity to win. This is 
Brian Redman, retired racing driver, nine times racing champion, still racing at 76, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Thank you, Mr. Redman. Also a very famous race car driver, also made an amazing career in Porsches. But anyway, hey, don't forget, today is, it's not Wednesday, since we used to be on Wednesday, it is Rib Shack Tuesday. So remember, I always talk about my good friends down to Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo. Give them a call for some of the best barbecue, chicken, beef, pork, 501-9090. That's 501-9090. And you know what? I want to big sh- say a big shout-out to my friends at Belladora's Pizza. It's Tuesday, and since I missed the Rib Shack joint, I'm going to go hit a Belladora's this afternoon. When I say this afternoon, right after the show, I'm going to go get a pizza on the way home. So don't forget to give my friends a visit. Belladora's Pizza on the corner of Clearwater Lager Road and West Bay, 581-5000. That's 581-5000 for some of the best. No, I should say not some of. The best pizza in Pinellas County. That's Belladora's Pizza. Say hi to Mark and Samantha down there. Be sure to mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know. You might get a little discount. Anyway, hey, jumping back to my buddies at uh, Amelia Island Select. you got to check out the list of cars that they got. Go to Amelia Island Select or HollywoodCarAuctions.com. He's got one car there. And, of course, you know I'm a big Ford guy. they got a 66 or 67 Fairlane factory R code. That's a 427 dual quad car. Another car that they got that's amazing, just a very rare car. It's a 1958 DeSoto with a Hemi in it. Now, two years ago, they sold one at the Palm Beach Auto Auction. It was a 1958 uh, DeSoto Adventure convertible, okay, gold, beautiful car, done by a guy here in the state of Florida. Absolutely flawless, yes, over-restored, but flawless jewelry quality restoration. That car brought over $400,000. And there was two guys that wanted it really, really bad, but somebody had a little deeper pocket. But anyway, so this time, they got the exact same car in white with gold trim, a gold and white trim on the inside. Okay, it's a convertible, but this one's got a Hemi, a dual quad Hemi, okay? This car should bring close to a half a million dollars. The numbers that these cars are bringing are absolutely mind-boggling. This is just really crazy stuff. They've also got a car that's right up my alley. They got a nice Healy up there, a 62 Healy. They got some Jags. They got a Mercedes 600. They got some Mercedes 300 SL Gullwings. Hey, I think we got our guest on the line, so what we're going to do is we're going to Played a little song, we're gonna do a little clip, and then I'm gonna introduce our special guest for the evening. Stick around, you're tuned into nostalgic radio and cars for the most fascinating and legendary names in motorsports.
Racing's important to men who do it well. Racing, it's life. Anything that happens before or after, just waiting. So, me particularly, I just cannot wait for 2014 at Le Mans just to see Porsche's return into the top class of racing again. This is Sterling Moss, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back. Thank you, Sir Sterling Moss, for that wonderful, brilliant intro. Yes, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our special special guest for the evening. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this gentleman. As you guys know, and you hear me talking about this all the time, uh, since the 70s, the mid-70s, I've been going to Daytona and Sebring, and occasionally Road Atlanta. This next gentleman has won Daytona three times. He has won Le Mans five times, countless races at Sebring. He has won the World Sports Car Championship Two times, I am delighted to welcome to the show this evening the living legend and racing champion, Derek Bell. Derek, are you there? I certainly am. Thank you. How are you doing this evening? Well, I'm pretty good. Very nice to be talking to you. Well, likewise. Thank you very much. So tell us a little bit about how you got started with cars. What was your first car, for example? Well, I, I started driving. I lived on a farm in Sussex, England, and... Um, I sort of used to drive tractors and jeeps and anything I'd lay my hands on from the age of nine. So when it came to the age of 17, which is the age you're allowed to drive in England, um, you know, it was pretty natural that I should pass my driving test, which is fairly stringent. I mean, they get at you. And um, after that, of course, my first car wasn't what I dreamt of having, which was a beautiful Austin Healey 104, because I thought that's naturally what I'd get. But it, it was a little old uh, Ford 10, like a Ford Anglia, and it was an awful thing. Of course, I had to love it, but it's not what I wanted. And I remember I flipped it upside down outside a church, which was very convenient, and that was where it stayed. <laughs> it became a planter, right? Basically. <laughs> okay. Well, now, uh, early on, I think you were very fortunate because your dad, or your stepfather, I guess, encouraged you to get into racing because you kind of uh, exemplified a kind of a, a natural ability to drive, right? Yeah, it was one of those, like, you know, how do you start? And I get numerous letters from people saying, you know, Derek, how do I get started? And it's really very difficult. I mean, if you've got the talent, I believe eventually you'll sh- you'll sh- the talent will shine through and you'll get the drive you deserve. But in my case, um, I had, you know, I was at college studying agriculture and I got the opportunity to go to a racing driver's school, which uh, to Jim Russell's school, which was in England, the first one in the world, I believe. And then Jim ended up bringing his school over here, and he was based on the west coast of America and still exists today. And uh, I went there, and after a series of, of, of going there, because I didn't have the money to do the whole course as quick as I could, because I was a student, um, you know, I got picked out one day by Jim as having an unusual talent, or a better talent than most. So that was it. And so I went home and told my stepfather that, you know, this had happened. And he said, you prove to me you've got the ability and I'll help you, which are very wise words because, you know, I had to go off on my own. I did nothing for a couple of years. And then a guy came along to sell me some farm machinery or sell us some farm machinery. And we got talking about our lives and he wanted to go racing. So we built a car called a Lotus 7. 
And uh, very fortunately, I won my very first race at my home circuit, which is called Goodwood in the Hills in Sussex. And that's how it started. You're talking about the Goodwood? The Goodwood, yeah. Wow. That's an amazing piece of history for you, isn't it? It is, because, you know, Goodwood stopped race. That was in 64. Goodwood closed at the end of 66 for various reasons. And reopened again, what, uh, 15 years ago with Lord March taking it over from his father. And he wants to pursue racing, but of course was very restricted on how many races he could have. The track is not at all safe by modern standards, but it makes great racing. And everybody in the world wants to race there from Dan Gurney downwards. have all been to Goodwood to race at some point in the last 15 years in historic cars or cars of their era. Let me ask you a question. Um... You started out at a young age, and you you had actually you went turned professional pretty quick within three years. Isn't that a little fast? I mean, isn't that kind of quick compared to most of your uh, competitors, your, or I should say your your uh, contemporaries of the time? I guess so, but I know I, I honestly don't know when other guys started until you get to, you only get to know some of them really quite well. And I couldn't even tell you when David Hobbs or Brian Revan, who are close friends of mine, when really they started. Um, I just know when I started, and then suddenly I had this opportunity. Um, you know, got a call from. I, well, I'd won quite a few races in Formula Three. I won eight races in my third year, and I got a call from Mr. Ferrari. Well, I went to Formula Two, and after two races, got summoned to Mar- Maranello for a test drive. And it was rare. But remember, by that time I was 27. I wasn't 16. You know, we started much later in life because we didn't have go karting then as a, a sort of a an elementary way of getting into car racing. And I wish to goodness we had had it. But, you know, we didn't. And so you didn't start until you were the age of 17. And then what did you buy? And in my case, I didn't have anything for five years. So I didn't get there that quickly, but I did in a series of years. And from when I started to when I got to Ferrari was my fourth season. So I was very lucky. Who were some of the uh, drivers uh, before your time that you kind of, they kind of inspired you. Who did you kind of look up to? Obviously, Sterling Moss, I would say, right, if I had to guess? Maybe Sterling. Um, you know, I was actually marshalling at Goodwood, because that's the closest I could get. You call it being a corner worker here. Oh, really? The closest I could get to racing was to be a corner worker. And I was actually a corner worker the day Sterling had his awful crash. And only about four weeks ago, I was having lunch with him, and a guy had sent me a photograph of me and Sterling pushing this handicapped chap in a wheelchair. And this, this journalist said, who is this? And I said, well, it's me. And I had, met, I had never met Sterling. He was my hero. He was my idol. And he was trying to move, push this guy through the paddock at Goodwood. And I ended up lending him a hand. And I'd never seen a photograph until four weeks ago. And it was Sterling and I. And now we're, we're so close as friends. It's amazing. We speak every week and we get together whenever he's over here. And I do whenever I'm in England. That's super. That's super. Yeah, so he was my idol. I mean... There were lots of people. I mean, Dan Gurney was a hero of mine. Jimmy Clark was a hero of mine. And, of course, you go back even further to Fangio and all those great drivers. But they were just such outstanding characters and genius of drivers, you know. Now, you did you, you actually did a little Formula One driving, too, correct? Somewhere along the time in your career? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I went to join Ferrari as a Formula Two driver. But after a couple of, I got qualified on pole position twice and led races in Formula 2, and Mr. Ferrari said, okay, you're getting a Formula 1 car. So I actually did the Italian Grand Prix in my first season at Ferrari. My first Grand Prix was the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, which you can imagine driving for Ferrari at Monza. 
Oh, wow. Uh, on the third row, the front row, Chris Amon, my teammate. The second row was Jackie X, my teammate. And I was on the third row in the other Ferrari. So it was pretty outstanding from, you know, experience for me. And then, believe it or not, the next Grand Prix I drove in was the United States Grand Prix at Watkins Glen, New York, which was the first in 1968, which was when the first time I ever came to America. So I'm really quite old. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, I want to digress for a second. There was a race car driver that was... All, I lived in Europe as a kid back in the 60s, okay? And I lived in Austria. So naturally, being an Austrian and of Austrian descent, we were big Jochen Rindt fans. Tell us yeah. some stories about Jochen Rindt, because you raced against him. Oh my gosh, yeah. He, he was fantastic. He was an absolute... He was... He, I mean, during my career, there were several people that I call superstars. And I, in a minute, I can give you the five or six names. They were people... They just had this star quality to bring that extra bit out when required. And Jochen was probably the first I met. I mean, I knew Sterling, but I hadn't raced against him. I knew Jackie Stewart, and I did race against him. But to me, he wasn't in that superstar quality that Jochen Rint was. Jochen was racing at that Grand Prix, in fact, at mm-hmm. Monza. He was actually behind me on the grid, but that doesn't reflect on his ability. He was just in a crappy car. But, um, and mine was probably okay. But... Well, I mean, Jochen Rint was absolutely outstanding. He, he often didn't turn up for practice on a Friday because he could do it all on the Saturday and go quick enough to be on pole, and he'd win the race on the Sunday. And we were together in single-seaters all through the 1968 season in Formula 2, which was my first year out of Formula 3. And, of course, after four races, I was summoned to Maranello. So I didn't race against him much. Uh, uh, he didn't race the whole year. But the early races, I raced against him. We had some fantastic races. When did you make the transition from open-wheel car to GT cars, sports cars? Well, it was sort of, it, gets, it ends up being pushed on you a little way. And um, I, the one thing I really wanted was to get a, you know, a real year of Formula One, and it barely nearly did to drive. I was going to race the Brabham for Bernie Eccleston, and we were going to have Martini's sponsorship, and it would have been incredible. It was after my year, my year at Porsche, so I, I digressed a little bit. But even that didn't come off because we, we end up Martini sponsoring the wrong car, an awful car called a Techno from Italy. So I never did drive the Brabham, but I, all I wanted really was one season in Formula One to show that I had that ability because I'd come through Formula Three and Formula Two at the top, so why shouldn't I be at the top in Formula One? And I'm not saying because I de- really don't believe I was ever at the star quality of a Jochen Rindt or the people I will tell you about in a moment, but it really was you know, an amazing period to be in racing. And, of course, you know, I, I got up into Formula One pretty quickly. Um, your contemporaries, which would be who's been on my show, David Hobbs and Brian Redman and Dan Gurney and so on, um, those guys really, truly liked open-wheel cars almost more so than a closed car, like a sports car. What are your thoughts? What are your experiences, and how did you feel about it? Oh, yeah, me too. I mean, really? I, I, there's nothing like a Grand Prix car. Whether I'm not sure about Indy cars because I'm not I've never raced them I've driven them but never raced them but but there's something special about a single seater you're in there it's insular you're on your own and you are in charge of that missile and there's something absolutely spectacular about getting that opportunity to drive in a Formula One car a sports car okay it is still just the same challenge but it doesn't give you quite that same buzz. Uh, but as, as you just said just now, I went across the sports cars after two seasons in Formula One. And, of course, thank goodness I did because it saved my life of racing. And I've raced for the next 40 years or something. Whereas if I'd stayed in Formula One, I probably would have either quit or I'd have been killed. 
The uh, fast forward, the 936, wasn't that a center seat? Didn't you sit in the center in that car? No, 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 not particularly. It might oh. look like it, but no, no. No, Jackie and I actually, we did some pictures for Porsche and Jackie Hicks, that is. And he sat, uh, he was, actually, I was in the driving seat and he sat next to me just for these press pictures. It was a little bit com- bit tight, you might say. But uh, you could sit two side by side. No, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't. No, it wasn't as central as a single seater would be. Okay. It wasn't allowed to be. All sports car racing, historically, as far as I know, you've always had to have a two seat. Okay. Large enough to take a passenger. Although nobody would be stupid enough to come with you. <laughs> now, I was reading somewhere that one of the first GT cars that you drove was a uh, Ford GT. Yes, it, yes, it was. You were, you were pretty good because that was a pretty unusual experience because. Before I ever drove anything, any sports car, in 68, when I joined Ferrari, um, Le Mans, I joined Ferrari in June to drive Formula 2 and Formula 1, if I was good enough. And in June, um, I joined them. And in July, I got a call from John Wire. Now, those of you who know the Gulf Porsches, the Steve McQueen Porsches, and that sort of thing, will know that John Wire ran the orange and blue Gulf GT40s. And um, he offered me a drive, I guess because I was English and it was an English team. And I went and tested at a place called Thruxton in the south of England. And he said, that is wonderful, Derek. You will drive with, with uh, Pedro Rodriguez at Le Mans. Well, of course, rather being incredibly naive, I, uh, sent a, a, a phone, I think I telex, because you didn't have such things as texting and emails <laughs> then. I telex Mr. Ferrari or the team manager. And I just said, can I be released from my contract to drive for the GT40 at Le Mans, which that year was to be in September for a political reason. And I got a, I got a very terse te- uh, telex back just saying, honor your contract, sign Ferrari. I went, okay, I guess I understand what you mean now. So that was it. So I got my test drive, but I never actually raced it. I oh. On a course one Le Mans. With, but I didn't do Le Mans for another two years after that. Well, that would have been interesting, you know what, because that would have been a milestone for you, because then you could have driven with Jackie X the following year, because Ford won in 69 also. Yes, I know, well, you know, ifs and buts, but, you know, at the end of the day, I had, I did have a pretty damn good uh, experience in Formula One, and then, of course, going to sports cars, which made my career, and all that we did together with all my fantastic teammates. I was just so lucky. So I don't, I don't say I missed that year of GT40. It was probably meant to be. Now, in 71, I think, was that when you first started uh, with Porsche? Yeah. Because there was a little clip that I played earlier in the show, uh, you describing basically how lethal the 917 Longtail was, which is the consensus from all the other people that have been on the show. So share your experiences with the uh, 917 Longtail. Well, you know, it's so strange because I was my, I was obviously blessed in my life, in racing life, because I... I um, seemed to get to teams when somebody else had sorted the dangerous car out. And when I got to the 917, it was the short tail and, um, you know, the, the K. And we, my, Joseph, my teammate, my Swiss teammate, we went off and we, uh, we won the Argentine 1,000 kilometers in January that year. Then we came to Daytona. Then we went to Sebring where we ran out of fuel at one and blew up at another. But uh, from that, you know, we actually progressed into the long tail for Le Mans. Uh, I did the test weekend at Le Mans, and I was expecting all sorts of horror shows. But remember, I'd only been to Le Mans once the year before with Ferrari, as it happens. And um, a privately entered car, nonetheless. And, uh, you know, I went to Le Mans for the test weekend, and they stuck me in this long tail. I can never understand why Sifford and Rodriguez would never test. And uh, eventually I found out that, in fact, they wouldn't test because the damn thing was so dangerous. And I was 
amazingly naive, and I didn't realize it was so dangerous. So I, I, I just drove it because I didn't know any better. Remember, I was terribly green. I'd hardly driven. I'd done, I was in my, what, fifth year, uh, sixth year, and um, I was so green that I just drove anything that they put under me, and I just drove it as fast as I could, and they seemed pretty happy. And that test weekend at Le Mans, Norbert Singer said to me at the end of it all, he said, okay, Derek, he said, so what uh, were the revs on the Mulsanne Strait? Remember, Mulsanne's four miles long. <laughs> and I said, I said, I was putting 8,100 revs. He said, ah, that is very good, because at 8,002, she blows up. <laughs> <laughs> at that point there, I realized about German, uh, you know, German per- perfection. And uh, he then got his slide rule out. We didn't have calculators then. And he worked out the top speed and he started laughing. And I said, why are you laughing? He said, I just calculated top speed. And I said, what is it? And he said, it's 246 miles an hour. And we were going that speed. But I tell you, you could actually hold, you didn't have any, didn't wander about the road. It was very stable. When you consider they didn't have the wind tunnels and the technology they had today, it was an absolute miracle it never flew when you actually think about it or the body didn't fall off. I mean, you couldn't test a body at 246. You didn't know panels were going to fall off and, you know, and, and, and doors were going to take off and burst off the car. And then they didn't. I mean, I was so lucky. The engine had a problem and an oil leak in the middle of the night and we fell out. But I mean, that was the quickest I've ever been at Le Mans. We go 230, 235 in the, in the later area, you know, the 962s, but they were built to do it. The 936, Okay. Yep. Now you race that car at Le Mans. That's basically an open car. Yeah. So how? What's it like going two hundred? Did that car do two hundred forty miles an hour as well? Uh, we're doing about two twenty five, two thirty. Okay. What's that like at two hundred and thirty miles an hour in an open car, especially at night on the Molson Strait, which you said is four miles straight, and then you have to get on the binders because you got to make a hairpin turn at the very end of that where the yeah, cafe it, is. Yeah. No. I mean. Open cockpit cars are always a problem because there's always turbulence in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. They'll put all sorts of deflectors around to try and make it, you know, more set, more comfortable for the driver. The honest truth is the whole way down the Mulsanne Strait, it's trying to lift your helmet off. And if it wasn't for the strap underneath that we had to pull up tight, your helmet would leap off halfway down the strait. So you're held down with buckles and, you know, and the strap you, we all know you have on helmets. And you just held on to the wheel and, and hoped for dear life. But remember, we did have seatbelts. So we weren't <laughs> going anywhere if the helmet did go off. But they, the, the, there was a lot of turbulence. And there were the odd cars that there wasn't so much turbulence. So, you know, people did perfect them. Well, why the early would... ones, they weren't very good because they didn't know about having a completely flat floor, you know, or having the floor as part of the aerodynamics. So the airflow underneath the car was smooth and even. They, they learned that some 10 years later. I, I honestly, I never understood the, uh, the the logic of an open car at that speed. You know, I mean, even even from a safety standpoint. But just like you said, it's kind of like when you go real fast on a motorcycle, your helmet's trying to come off. You know, so. No, but, but it, 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 it's not. It wasn't. I always liked open cockpit cars, and even in the in nineteen ninety four, which was my last real year in a sports car, ninety five to ninety six, I drove the mirror, the um, Harrods McLaren, but. I drove an open car in 94, and it was actually lovely to be in the open air. You can't believe it. Mind you, it isn't any cooler because the air inside the cockpit is so hot from the radiators and the oil pipes going back to the engine from the front that it wasn't any cooler than a closed car. Was that the uh, WSC cars that they raced there for a few years? Um, No. I I mean, this was, uh, I mean, I'm talking about... In the 90s? 
I'm talking, yeah. Okay. The 90s, because they broke, you know, brought in those three and a half litre racing engine right. cars, which I actually didn't drive. I'm, in a way, I'm rather glad to say I kept driving the Porsche 962s, which, of course, I loved driving and they were so good. But then I changed to the McLaren, which was when they were mucking about with the rules and regulations in sports car racing. <clears throat> and, um, of course, you know, you had to drive more like a GT car. And that's when, you know, my son, Justin, and I, and Andy Wallace actually led Le Mans for 16 hours and with three hours to go had a problem with the clutch release bearing. And uh, we finished third. But we had led and been on the same lap as, uh, as the other McLaren with J.J. Leto in, which was quite remarkable, actually, considering all night we were on the same lap as the other car that came second. That actually won. So what was it like racing with your son um, in that particular was, race? Oh, it was phenomenal. Um, I was always very nervous about being with him because I thought, gosh, I'm taking these chances. Well, not chances. It's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? I mean, I was driving through corners in the wet, and I was going, I'm, a, I'm nearly out of control. How can I let my son do this? But in, uh, but in fact, in the McLaren, he drove remarkably well, and it was, a, it was quite an easy car. We did drive another couple of times at Le Mans, and I was terrified when he got in the car. And you know, this rule, that, not rule, this sort of it's a... Uh, it's an agreement between drivers. As you change over, one driver gets in, the other one gets out. You always sort of give him a tip and say, watch out for oil at Arnage or watch out for a big sheet of water at Tete Rouge. And, of course, I remember Justin, yeah, there he, I can't even tell you what age he was, what was he, 24 or something, and he looks at me out of, a, out of his helmet as I got to slam the door uh, on this Porsche. And I look at him and he's like saying, come on, Dad, tell me, I want to know. And I went, Justin, uh, um, just drive, and I slammed the door. <laughs> it was such a nightmare out there. I couldn't start to tell him where to look out. And the answer is you just go and find out yourself anyway. Do instincts take over? I'm sorry? Do instincts, your instincts, do they take over when you're, when you're out there on the track? I mean, yeah, you know. You've got to remember that at 180 in the rain, because I guess we didn't do much more than that in the rain, even down Moore's on. The Mulsanne was very twitchy because it's the main road, and it's a two-lane road, the highway, one road going one side going north and the other road going south. You go down both sides. And where the trucks have been running the previous year on the way to Spain from Paris, as they go running down there, they leave these massive sort of, you know, uh, grooves in the road by the tires like we get anywhere in America. And the water lies in there, so the, and the car actually starts. It's very difficult to keep it out of those because you have to let go by people, you have to pull out to overtake. You have to pull out into another sort of, you know, ditch of water to, and keep it under control. It's pretty damn frightening. And as you say, instinct does come into it, of course, but it's, it's circuit knowledge and the knowledge of how wet it was last time and it was how wet it was through that section the time before. But if you can imagine, the problem is there are 50 cars on the racetrack. Let's say by now there are only 40, you know, eight hours, 10 hours into the race. And if you just happen to be behind a, you know, a group of 15 of them that you're catching up gradually over a series of a lap, because um, remember, it's an eight-mile lap, as you go down the, into these sections, you go through and the water isn't bad because there's been all these other cars going through, albeit 20 seconds before you, 10 seconds before. You come around the next lap, and maybe half of them have gone in the pits for fuel or whatever it is, or you've overtaken half of them. And you come around the next lap and go through the same court section of track and you start to go through at the same speed and the car suddenly sort of flies sideways on you because there's more water line there because it hasn't been displaced by the cars which are not now in front of you. 
So, it, you know, it, it is certainly, you've got to be pretty much, you've got to be hellishly sharp to be able to complete the car under control. And I mean, I think all three of us, but that last particular year in the McLaren, which was, I think, my most memorable year, I mean, to finish third with your son on Father's Day is pretty special. And of course, you know, having the, Andy Wallace, who was phenomenal in the drive. But I mean, you know, it's pretty special, and, and but terrifying on the track. When you drove down Le Mans, that back four-mile stretch there, the 956 versus the 962. Now, there's just actually the the 956 was out first. What is just a there was a change in the car. It's positioning of the driver, wasn't it, or something? It's really the positioning of the driver's feet, right? And they made the car a little bit longer. The the 962, I'm sure, was meant for the World Championship as well. But the Americans with that phenomenal IMSA series. John Bishop's series, they insisted, the Camel GT series, it was called, they insisted on having your feet behind the center line of the front wheel. And it was a really good safety feature. Uh, In the World Championship, nobody seemed to bother much until the Americans made a a point about it. So the 956 was out for two seasons. And then at the end of it, uh, out came the 962 in Europe. And then we got the car over here, of course, with a slightly different engine. We had the single turbo engine, which the lower brow Porsche, which I won, won a few races with Al Holder. Was, uh, in your opinion, the 962 probably one of the finest racing cars of the era? Oh, it had to be, yeah. I mean, when you, I know one always looks back. I remember my parents looking back and saying, oh, those were the days. But I tell you what, that sports car era from the early 80s till the early 90s, I mean, 10 or 11 years, was amazing in sports. And you can't help but say, what was your favorite car? Well, I mean, there were some magnificent sports cars I drove, and I can mention them, but the best has to be the 962. I don't know quite how many races I won, but I know I won more races than anybody else in the history of Porsche with that in that era. And, I mean, it was just brilliant. And I said to somebody just yesterday at an event we were doing, not the Concorde, but uh, another event, and I, I just said, you know, I mean, that car, you just get in it. And it was so easy to drive. All right. Every, it's easy to drive until, of course, you have to show the skill you supposedly have and to knock that last quarter of a second off or tenth of a second to get pole position or to win the race. But it was such an easy car. I mean, you got in, turned the key, put it into gear, and off you drove. You know, there was nothing special. There weren't switches to put on and all that stuff. Of course, you had to turn boosts up and play with switches while you were going fast. But it was, it was a magnificent car. I mean, when you think what it won, and it... It didn't really injure that many people. I mean, all people didn't get injured in it that much. And that ground effect, the grip that that car had, you've got to remember it was ground effect that made that car. It was absolutely incredible. And when I actually reflect, I must tell you a very brief story, if I may, if we got sure. another minute. And there was a, I was actually talking about my contract back before the 956 came out, uh, when I was in the office at Vice with Professor Bott, the head of the research and development of Borgia. And he said, and, uh, he said to me, okay, Derek, he said, we would like you to drive for us next year in Group C. And I said, oh, thank you very much, Herr Bob. And you're very honored and flattered. He said, we are, he said, we're building a monocoque chassis, which you know what that is, as opposed to a space frame. He said, and they've never done a space, a, a monocoque before. He said, we're building a monocoque chassis. We have never done that before. We're going to put, we're going to have, um, we're going to have a ground effect chassis in that monocoque chassis. We have never done that before either. And he said, also, we're going to put a horizontally opposed, the six-cylinder horizontally opposed Porsche engine in it. 
and nobody's ever done that before. And I thought, hell, you know what? I'm not about to sign this contract. Doesn't sound too promising. <laughs> and he's and then he looked at me and he said, but we have never been wrong before. So I thought I better sign quickly. So I signed <laughs> the contract, and of course, it was the best thing I ever did. Be uh, magic. That's, a that's great... why I'm looking forward to this year. I think you know Porsche at Le Mans this year could be very exciting. But we always said, you know, that it took three years to win Le Mans. Uh, but Porsche have such an experience and a depth of experience and technology to pull on um, that I think they can obviously they can do it sooner. But I think it'd be a hell of a dust up this year. Well, yeah. Quickly, what are your thoughts on the Daytona prototype and that type of racing and what's happening to Grand Am and ALMS? Well, I pray and hope that it works out. I believe it's going to be okay. I believe, uh, I, I've always said, the two factions have to get together. You can't have two sports car series in America or anywhere, for that matter. They have to work together. And I, I believe, uh, having been at the 24-hour, that they've, they have got together. Um, I think that it was an unusual result. I think it was a, a very good race, uh, exceptionally good race. I wasn't sure if some of the moves were made, but I thought that at least they're getting there and they're working together. I think certainly some adjustments have to be made to make it better, but I think they're heading in the right direction because we all want the thing to work. But I don't think you can have prototypes overtaking you know, open-wheel sports cars, in my opinion. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, GT cars overtaking uh, LMP2 equivalent or even Grand Am. It, it, they've got to make some uh, some better adjustments to the rules in that, in my opinion. But I, I think it's got to. It has to be the future. There's no other way to go. It's the first time they've all got together to try and sort it out, and they're all keen to do it. And when you meet them all, they're all dead keen to do it. So I think it'll happen. Daytona and Sebring. Your thoughts? Because you've raced at both of them. Would you say Sebring's a little more technical than Daytona? Daytona, I'm glad that Sebring isn't a 24 hour because I don't think anybody would finish it. <laughs> Daytona is a lot easier on the body. It's a lot easier on the car because you haven't got very, very really what you'd call high-speed corners. I mean, you're going to say, what about the bowl? Well, you know, you go around the banking, and the banking keeps the car from going sideways mainly. Um, but you know, Sebring is so rough. I mean, it's, it, even with all the modifications they've done, it's still a rough old track. It's fantastic. We went there. I remember racing there in 71. It was my first year. And I, I went flying off to the, through all the barbed wire when the suspension broke on the 917. And Mario was behind me in a Ferrari. And we both, he got me back to the pits. And we said, we can't race here. It's ludicrous. And here we are still coming back, you know, 40 years later. It has changed. But I think Sebring, if you can finish the 12 hours of Sebring, you can win Le Mans and you can also win Daytona. Because the car is strong enough and so are the drivers. But... But, and and I, I have to be honest, I love the atmosphere at Sebring. I think that sort of motor racing grassroots history, we, you know, with 100,000 people there, which we just don't get at Daytona, which is sad. But it's because of the facility, you know, the facility at Sebring lends itself to this sort of rough and ready, you know, sort of history of racing that we've all got used to. The uh, you, you want let, real quickly here, you are a brand ambassador for uh, Bentley. And um, but also you're involved with a few charities. You want to plug your charities real quick? Well, first of all, I say I worked very briefly with Bentley. Uh, I worked very briefly. I worked with Bentley since the year 2000. Okay. Helped with the racing program, then ambassador, and then of course uh, you know I'm involved with the Bentley dealership and Porsche dealership in Naples, which is great with the guys down there. We have a, you know it's a good time, and I really enjoy that interest that I've got these days. Um, but. Um, 
uh, the charity-wise, it's a very different thing. I, I mean, I think nearly everything we do, like last weekend at the concourse, a charitable event, um, we do a lot of them. We raise a lot of money one way or another. I mean, I don't personally, but the fact that I participate means, I guess, that I've helped raise a bit. I'm, I'm sort of, in a way, more involved in Britain because it's basically, you know, been my home all these years and uh, been involved with charities with people I've known in a more personal way. And I've enjoyed it. But, you know, I'm not a very good charity person because I'm always dashing around the world doing stuff. So I can't be relied on to turn up at a meeting every week. You're lucky to get me there once a year. <laughs> but the charities for a good cause are for uh, wounded soldiers and what else? Which one? Oh, that one, yes, the Mission Motorsport. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I mean, and we're slightly involved with, the, you know, the same, the same charity over here in the United States. The guys from Britain have been over trying to encourage, um, you know, the, uh, to, to get stuff involved. And we have... You know, the, the, sorry, the, the the wounded from the wars to get into cars, and I actually been along instructing the guys in England, um, uh, you know, as to you know how to drive better with you know with their uh, disfigurements. You know, and the guys have become amazingly good, and I just think it's great to give these chaps an opportunity, um, you know, to get into race cars, give them a passion, give them something to look to do, because you know they seem to come back from these terrible wars and people don't seem to respect them enough so you know i think what we've tried to do and i've in my own little way have tried and i know it's being worked on over here with the american uh, sort of equivalent uh is fantastic that's and super i get a position you know i know a certain of the wounded have got jobs at bentley they've got them at lexus and they've got them um at other car manufacturers in europe uh because they can go in there and they and they have it they have like a a, a year to prove their ability. They, they would not get thrown out, like after six weeks, oh, you're taking too long. They give their time at the factories to help these people develop and, uh, you know, to find their place and to sort of get their confidence back so they can work as a normal person. Well, that's very commendable of you. Derek, uh, we're out of time. I want to thank you very much for uh, taking the time and tell some stories. I would love to have you back on again because, actually, I had a number of questions I wanted to ask. We didn't get through them. This, this show is kind of like a race. It gets over pretty quick sometimes. I want to thank my special guest, the legendary championship race car driver from England who's raced all over the world, set records all over the world, Derek Bell. It's an honor to have him on our show. Derek, I will definitely see you for certain at Sebring probably in a couple weeks because that's next month. In the meantime, I want to thank everybody for tuning into Nostalgic Radio and Cars where you can find and hear and listen to the most legendary and fascinating names in motorsports. Be sure and check out our Facebook page. Don't forget to like us. Don't forget our website, GolfStreetMotorsports.com. Hey, guys, show up at some of these events. I expect to see everybody at Amelia Island. It's a great event. Put that on your bucket list. Don't forget the National Mustang Racing Association, their events at Brady the Motorsports. The St. Pete Grand Prix is coming up. Sebring 12 Hours is coming up. This is just a ton of cool car stuff. So, hey, everybody, take care. Stay safe. Drive carefully. Most importantly, love your family. And tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And I want to see some of the car shows. Take care, everybody. School, but there's a feller in there who'll pay you $10 if you sing into his pants. Downtown Dave. I'm not here to make a record, you dumb cracker. It broadcasts me out on the radio. WTAN, Clearwater, Tampa Bay. WDCF, Dade City, Tampa Bay. WZHR, Zephyr Hills, Tampa Bay. Listen. You dumb cracker.